You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 197, Legalization or Decriminalization? What does it all mean? Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, your work has really just built relationships and connections and partnerships around the globe. And today, we're so glad to be able to dive in on that that first piece we uh, talk about in every introduction, studying the issues. And uh, being able to uh, bring a voice to you who really just has a tremendous expertise in this area, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Donna Hughes. She is a professor and holds the Eleanor M. and Oscar M. Carlson Endowed Chair in Women's Studies. She has a joint appointment with Gender and Women's Studies and Criminology and Criminal Justice. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Dignity, a journal on sexual exploitation and violence. Donna, we're so glad to welcome you to the show. I'm really thrilled to be here. It's an important topic, and I would love to talk about a lot of your work, especially if people have not found Dignity, a journal on sexual exploitation and violence. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. And Dr. Hughes really digs deep on these issues. But today, we want to talk about a growing discussion or debate in our community about legalization or decriminalization? What does it all mean? So can you kind of give us a primer on legalization and decriminalization when with regards to prostitution and human trafficking? Okay. There are four legal approaches to prostitution, and all of them have a different impact on uh, sex trafficking. The first is the one that in the United States that people are most familiar with, and that's criminalization, because except for a few counties in Nevada, uh, all states in the United States have criminalized prostitution. And what that means is that everyone involved in prostitution, whether it be the prostituted woman, the sex buyer, the pimp, or the trafficker, or the brothel keeper, all of those people are criminalized. It's really a prohibitionist model. The other model, or one of the other models, is uh, legalization. And you hear a lot of people saying, well, why don't we just legalize it? Which I can talk a little bit about why that's not a good idea in a moment. But what legalization means is that, of course, you remove the, the criminal penalties and you turn it into a business where you have regulations. Uh, for example, where, it's, where you're allowed to have a brothel, what time it's allowed to be open, you know, those kind of things. And the women would be taxed and the brothel keeper would be, uh, be taxed. Uh, and it really turns it into sex work rather than prostitution. And the, the pimps who we normally know are really often quite unsavory characters and quite cruel are turned into business managers. And that is the model that exists in uh, the Netherlands and in Germany and a few other places. Another of the models that you mentioned is called decriminalization. 
And decriminalization means that you remove all criminal penalties for any of the acts involved in prostitution or pimping or brothel keeping. You remove all of the penalties, but you don't put into place any regulation. This is what the advocates of decriminalization want, what are called the, the sex work advocates. They want to have all criminal penalties removed. Uh, they like to talk about it as uh, just a private act uh, between consenting adults uh, in a hotel. And when you bring up legalization, what's really interesting is that you find that they don't want legalization because they don't want regulation. They seem to think that it's possible to have this commercial activity in which uh, they are free to carry it out in any way they want. So when you're looking at at those four models, then the sex workers' rights argument then is not for legalization, but for decriminalization. Is that what I understand? That's correct. If you go back to the uh, 1990s, there was a move towards legalization. And that's what happened in uh, the Netherlands and in Germany. But what the sex work rights people uh, learned, along with the pimps, was that, that they didn't like regulation. Even that was too much for them. They really wanted it to just be totally open uh, for them to, to do whatever they want without any kind of interference, even uh, a regulatory one. So the German and the Amsterdam, the Netherlands model, those are legalization, not decriminalization models, correct? That's correct. And what have been the problems that we've learned by watching those models? Well, particularly in the, the Netherlands, one of the arguments for legalization was that it was going to get rid of pimps. It was going to get rid of organized crime. The women would be able to rent the windows in uh, Amsterdam. They would be able to, to conduct their own business. But what everyone soon learned was that the pimps were still there. They were still monitoring uh, matter of fact, I talked to someone in Interpol a number of years ago who investigated this and said, well, the pimps are still there. They sit in the coffee shops across the, across the canal and count how many women, or excuse me, how many men go into the windows. And uh, then they meet the women when they come out, when their shift is over, and they es- escort them away, assuming taking the money as well. Wow. Uh, so it did not, it did not get rid of the pimps as was expected. Also, one of the things that they saw that although they may have had some regulations for what was happening right in the center city in the visible sex industry, what happened was that there was an explosion of the illegal sex industry in apartments all around the city. Uh, So there was this core that you could say were following some regulations, but it led to a tremendous expanse of illegal, unregulated prostitution. And of course, the organized crime stepped into that and made a tremendous amount of money. How did legalizing so it, did not, it create that environment where, where illegal activity could happen? You would have to go in and get your license and, oh. and they could regulate the windows. If you're just putting advertisements on the internet, you can, the men can be coming to any kind of a, an apartment or hotel throughout the city. And no one is there to have any regulations or monitor it. 
So there's a parallel for me in one of the challenges we have here in California. We're trying to find labor trafficking victims, but labor trafficking investigations are much more difficult because the people are in occupations that are legal. So if I'm looking for trafficking victims in restaurants, there's no law against washing dishes and bussing tables. So you end up creating a similar parallel in sex trafficking when you legalize. That's my perspective, because then it's not as easy to prove the force, fraud, or coercion elements of a human trafficking case. You're absolutely right. And that's what has happened in Germany, where they have huge mega brothels, where uh, prostitution, all forms of prostitution are legal. But because it's legal, the police now say, well, we don't have any cause to go in and investigate. It's everything according to the law that's happening there is legal. And it makes it very difficult then to do any kind of investigations on sex trafficking. It's challenging. So what about the Nordic model? How, how does that fit in this debate? Okay, yes. I said that there were four models, legal models. This is the fourth one. And it was introduced uh, by feminists uh, back in the 1990s and finally was passed in 1998 in, in Sweden. And it's an abolitionist model. And I, what I mean by abolitionist is they support the idea that you hold perpetrators accountable and you provide services to victims. And if we look at what's happening in prostitution, we see that the people that are getting hurt uh, are the women who are involved in selling sex. While the people that are perpetrators that are usually involved in causing the harm are the sex buyers and the pimps and the traffickers. So in the Swedish model, the sex buyers, uh, the pimps or the traffickers and the brothel keepers are all made into criminals. Meaning it's a criminal act to do those things. While the victims in this case, the women who are selling the sex, uh, are decriminalized. And when they are found, they are referred to services. So sometimes people misinterpret that and call that decriminalization, but it really isn't. Right. Uh, There's a lot of confusion right now with the word decriminalization because some people say, well, the Swedish model, and by the way, the Swedish model has now been passed in uh, a number of other countries, uh, including Norway, France, Canada, and Israel. So it really is no longer the Swedish model. It's no longer the Nordic model. I believe we need to call it the abolitionist model. Oh, I like um, that. Because it aims, yeah, because it aims to hold the perpetrators accountable and provide services to the victim. Hmm. So one of, one of the things that happened, we had a big media blast here in California last year over a legislation that went through here in California that, air quotes, decriminalized minor sex trafficking. And so law enforcement officers would see an, a minor being sold for sex and arrest no one. And that was horrific because now the traffickers were were operating with impunity. And it took right. a lot of corrective education to to turn that around. So although the abolitionist model decriminalizes the victim, what the sex work advocates, the proponents of the sex industry are proposing is what is referred to as 
full decriminalization. They also want the penalties removed from the sex buyers, from the pimps, uh, and from the brothel keepers. And a lot of people don't know that. When they hear decriminalization, they think it's only going to take the penalties off the victims. Uh, and it will do that. Uh, but what they want is full decriminalization. And a lot of people then are pretty surprised uh, when they understand that there's a difference between uh, the abolitionist models, decriminalization, and the uh, sex work uh, proponents, full decriminalization. And how do you define sex workers? Because they define themselves differently, maybe, than an abolitionist might. Yes. It's not a term I use. The only time I use that term is when I'm sort of referring to uh, what people, uh, to proponents and what they are uh, proposing. Uh, other, otherwise, I use other terms. I, I don't do anything to normalize uh, the buying and selling of sex. Okay, so the challenge in choosing language is normalizing something that is not supposed to happen, right? That's right. This is a, a bit of a battle for terminology and who is going to uh, win the, the war of words. Uh, and that's why we have to be quite careful about the, the terms we use and to explain them to people because there is a lot of confusion about it. Uh, what you were saying earlier is that they decriminalize minors in the selling sex. I totally support that. Of course, uh, children should not be arrested and criminalized for being a victim of sexual abuse any more than if there was a child who was being sexually abused by a coach or a teacher or a priest. We wouldn't think about arresting that child. We'd say, of course not. Uh, that child is a victim and the teacher, the coach, the priest needs to be held accountable. And we need to think the same way around prostitution. Uh, absolutely, if someone is underage, uh, then they are a victim and they should never be arrested and they need to uh, be provided with shelter and services. So the idea of using terminology, one of the things that we try to keep forefront here is the reason we use the word trafficking in our legal elements and our approach to ending the exploitation of people for sex or labor is because trafficking is the term used for people who sell weapons or sell drugs. These are things that are not supposed to be sold. So we've adopted the same language in this battle because people are not supposed to be sold, whether it's for labor, slavery, or sexual exploitation. Are there other terms that we should be really careful about? Well, I would say that we even have to be a little bit careful of trafficking uh, using that term because it does have a legal definition. There is a uh, U.S. federal, there is a federal law uh, and there's a California law that defines exactly what trafficking is. And it usually requires for an adult the use of force, fraud, and coercion. Although anyone who is involved in the commercial sexual exploitation of a child is criminalized and the, the victim is, uh, is never criminalized or should not be criminalized. And that leads uh, some, to some confusion. And I think getting back to what you were talking about earlier about the police then simply ignoring the activity means that we need a lot of police training. I mean, remember, we really are shifting the paradigm for the police. 
we're in some ways changing things, we're turning some things upside down, and it's going to require a lot of education, uh, a lot of training for police to uh, know how to respond when they, a particular situation, uh, particularly when it might involve a minor. But I would add, it doesn't matter if we're advocating any kind of change in laws right now throughout the United States, except those counties in Nevada, it is illegal to purchase sex or to solicit someone for prostitution. Therefore, we could go after what is referred to as the demand, the sex buyers, with the laws we have in place right now. We might want better laws, but we have what it would take right now to go after the demand or the sex buyers. Mm, that's profound. And we, we need to schedule another podcast to talk about what that strategy would look like. I'm looking at the time and I want to spend a little bit of focus on what's happening in Rhode Island and why that should concern all of us. Okay. In Rhode Island, in uh, the late 1970s, there was an advocacy group called Coyote, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, who filed suit against the chief of police of Providence, Rhode Island, the capital, uh, and the attorney general of Rhode Island for sex discrimination. This was a federal uh, lawsuit. And their charge was that they were enforcing the prostitution laws unfairly in that they were arresting many more women than they were arresting men. And as you know, throughout the country, if you look at the statistics of who gets arrested uh, using prostitution laws, it's usually the women. So it was very clear that they were going to win this federal lawsuit, uh, sex discrimination lawsuit, because in fact they were arresting more women than men. Well, the legislators, and I think it was just to a couple people, decided they could figure, they figured out a way to get themselves out of this federal uh, sex discrimination lawsuit. And that is, they changed the law. Mm. They decriminalized prostitution if it occurred indoors. And at the same time, they made a lot of noise and talked a lot about how they were changing the law for uh, what we call street walking or soliciting on the street. Uh, but it was sort of unknown that they had decriminalized it indoors. Well, this went on for, I won't give you all the uh, details of it, for 29 years. Finally, it was uh, discovered, uh, actually back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, that there was no law against prostitution if it occurred indoors. And this was decriminalized, meaning they had removed the code from the criminal code. It wasn't regulated. It simply meant there was a void in the criminal code when it came to anything to prostitution indoors. And this led to, uh, once this was found out, to a proliferation of prostitution in strip clubs. A lot of the Asian massage parlors, which of course are run by Asian organized crime, came into the state. And it started to become a real sex tourist destination. It was discovered that there were many leading businessmen who were making money by renting properties at an, uh, at an increased rate to the massage parlors. And uh, there was just no regulation or criminal laws against this at all. And matter of fact, the former or the mayor at uh, one time said it was the Wild West. 
Wow. And as this become more uh, more widely known, there were just uh, pimps, massage parlor operators, you know, strip club owners, you just coming to the state. Matter of fact, they were bringing men in on buses from surrounding states like Connecticut and Massachusetts for a weekend or an evening at the strip club. So what happened was it took a couple of years, but finally in 2009, the legislators passed a law to recriminalize prostitution or you know, to, to make it uh, a crime for prostitution to take place indoors uh, as well as outdoors. Okay. And then more recently now, there's more discussion back on, back on the table, right? Well, what we found was that there was a, uh, a legislator, representative, who even back in 2009 opposed the passage of a new law criminalizing indoor prostitution. And everyone has sort of known that's her point of view for some time. Well, this past winter, a couple months ago, she said she was going to introduce a bill. Actually, she did introduce a bill that would have set up a study committee to review the laws on prostitution. She named some of the people or some of the organizations who should be on the the committee, the study committee, and they were the advocates of decriminalizing sex work. So it was very clear what her uh, agenda was. And that really got people's attention because most people remember what was happening back in the uh, years before, just 10 years ago. And Certainly, or a lot of people remember what the fight was to make sure that we ended decriminalized prostitution. So that got a lot of attention. One of the things that I knew, and that is that they have introduced the same kind of legislation in New Hampshire. That seems to be their leading proposal. And that is, let's just form a commission or a study group. Uh, Let's just see, you know, let's just take a look. Maybe it needs a fresh look. Uh, but when you see who they're proposing to be on the committee, you know what the outcome is going to be. And of course, as soon as they could get a, a report written by a legislative committee saying that we think you should le- decriminalize prostitution, well, then they could wave it around and say, okay, this, we need to respond to this, and you know, so forth. Also, one of the things we found out, and the same thing is happening up in New Hampshire, and that is that there are organizations that are paying for lobbyists within the state to lobby legislators for decriminalization of prostitution. So that's something we need to be aware of and start checking the Secretary of State's website for each state uh, to see if these organizations are paying for lobbyists in in the state to advocate for decriminalized prostitution. So this is something that we need to be more aware of and learn how to be strategic in our response instead of just waiting for it to be on the ballot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As soon as you hear, matter of fact, we know that in California, they're already organizing. So if you oppose decriminalized prostitution, then you really need to be organizing now and finding out who is heading the organizations, what their strategy are, and start raising awareness of what this means. One of the things that I think we should ask them of these kind of questions. Number one, they like to say, well, what's wrong with, you know, private behavior between consenting adults? Well, first of all, do you know of any other kind of commercial business or commercial services 
that is allowed to operate unregulated. Mm. Uh, I don't know of any. And if you go to a nail salon or a salon to get your hair done, people have to be licensed. There are health inspections. So why is it they think that somehow they should be, are going to be free to operate outside of any kind of a regulatory environment? Wow. Dr. Donahues, you have raised some really high-profile questions, and we're going to have to spend more time investigating this. Your website will link will be on our show notes, and as this discussion continues to escalate around elections and legislation, we need to be really diligent in studying these issues so we understand why we believe what we believe, why we don't want legalization and decriminalization. And your voice on this is so important, your years of research, and we just want to thank you so much for coming on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast today. Thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it. Sandy, thank you so much, Donna. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your expertise. Uh, Sandy, as you mentioned, so much that has been brought up by this conversation, and we would invite you to take the next step in visiting endinghumantrafficking.org. You're going to find the links for everything we've talked about in this episode, uh, the links to Donna's work and the journal. Uh, In addition, there's also a link there for you to hop online and download Sandy's book, The Five Things You Must Know, A Quick Start Guide to Ending Human Trafficking. It'll teach you the five critical things that Sandy and her team here at the Global Center for Women and Justice have identified that you should know before you jump in to join the fight against human trafficking. You can access all of that by going over to endinghumantrafficking.org. And if you have a question that's come up from today's conversation, our email address is a great way to start a conversation with us. Feedback at endinghumantrafficking.org is where to go. And Sandy, I will see you back in two weeks for our next conversation. Thanks, Dave. Take care, everyone.